Well, it's nice to see you all. Um, I bring greetings and special thanks from the faculty and staff of Westminster Seminary of California. We're so grateful to you, Christ Central. We have dear friends here in Pastors Harold and, and Jimmy and Andrew and many others that are here. And your prayers for us have been great encouragement to us. And so we continue to covet your prayers. Remember us when you're able. Uh, pray for me. Pray for the faculty. Pray for the institution that we may remain faithful in serving him. It's my joy to be with you this morning, and as I bring God's word, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. I realize that the text is a little long, but hear the whole context of what Paul is reminding us this morning when he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its, from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what, we, what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose." For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, thank you for inviting us into your home, your sons and daughters saved by the grace and blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We recognize, O oh Lord, that many of us do not deserve to be here. Just in hindsight, as we look back upon our week, many of us, whether we said so or not, have lived lives that are in rebellion against you. But Lord, we come before you, not with fear and trepidation, but with confidence, knowing that you in Christ accept us, embrace us, loves us, and then not only that, Lord, you welcome us with open arms. So, Lord, as we turn to your word this morning, open our ears so that we may hear your voice directly. Open our eyes that we may behold your glory. Lord, prepare our hearts even now that we may be softened, that those who already know you may recognize and witness and experience again your goodness to us. And those who do not know you who are gathered here inquiring of who you are, I pray that by your spirit, you break their hearts, soften them for your glory and for your salvation. For we pray these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Friends, earlier this year, 
A gunman entered Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, and killed 17 people and injured scores of others. We hear of shootings way too often these days. You might recall the worship service of a small church in Sutherland Springs, Texas last year, where a gunman killed at least 25 and wounded 20 more before killing himself. This followed last year of a senseless and tragic killing spree in Las Vegas, where the gunman killed 58 and left 500 more in the hospital. Perhaps you have friends or family in Hawaii this week and kept tabs on Hurricane Lane as it headed toward the islands. A part of the concern stems from last hurricane season when the nation witnessed multiple major hurricanes that left 103 dead and over $200 billion in damages, prompting Time Magazine to actually ask the question, is this the worst hurricane season ever? Again, in California, wildfires devastated an area near Redding where the quickly moving fire actually consumed over 134,000 acres, the size larger than the metropolitan Denver area. And for those of us in San Diego, many of us who lived or love San Diego, we remember times, multiple times, where we were asked to leave our homes because the dangers were too high. We recall as family one time 10 years ago where we were evacuated because the fires were too close. In fact, for our family, about 1.5 miles from our very home. Perhaps many of us here have witnessed suffering and pain, heartaches, and perhaps even death this year, our loved ones, friends, and coworkers. And we recognize that in our daily lives that sufferings and pain are all around us. Paul knew something about suffering. He knew something about pain and weakness. Listen to his words in chapter 835 when he talks about those things that might actually separate him from the love of Christ, when he talks about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. Reading about his ministry briefly in the book of Acts reminds us that Paul is not just ruminating or theorizing about suffering and pain and weakness. He actually lived them. Because, friends, life and all its ups and downs does not surprise Paul. This is why he says in a summary statement in verse 18 of chapter 8 that we read this morning, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, sufferings of this present time, for you see, Paul was a realist. It is true that Paul often speaks of sufferings that accompany faith, what he calls in verse 17, sufferings with Christ that many of us face in our workplaces and perhaps in our schools. This should not surprise many of us as we see the nation change and our culture go through a shift in many ways that reminds us that what John said was indeed true in 1 John 3.13 when he said, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And perhaps Hope International University is the same, but if you type in Wicked Schools California, you'll see Westminster Seminary California proudly displayed there, not because we wanted to, but simply we don't fit the culture in which we find ourselves. 
Although those things are all true, what Paul has in mind here in this passage is not sufferings that accompany those who follow Jesus Christ and call upon his name as Lord and Savior, but he's talking about living on this side of glory. For on this side of glory, what Paul refers to as this present time, all of creation is marked by suffering, futility, and bondage, all resulting from sin. Thus, creation itself eagerly longs for freedom and restoration of God. But it's not just creation. We are told all human creation, including those of us who are believers, also await the restoration and freedom that God brings. Verse 23 says this, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, Paul says. Suffering is all around us, whether from weak and weakening bodies, broken relationships and families, constant natural disasters, struggles through daily uncertainties. These are all part and parcel of our lives. We daily realize that this world is not our home, and this is not the way it's supposed to be. Paul is indeed right when he says we live in weakness. In place of order, we have disorder and rebellion. In place of peace, we have discord and brokenness. In place of health, we experience pain and illness. In place of life, we daily experience death. And the question that Paul wants to pose us this morning is simply this. How can a believer like many of you and me maintain hope in the face of suffering and weakness? How can we trust that God is in charge in the midst of all the suffering and weakness that we daily see and witness and often feel and experience on our own? Friends, I want to tell you this morning in our passage, Paul answers this question by focusing on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Ministry of the Holy Spirit, and there are four things that Paul wants us to consider that the Spirit does. These four things are parentage, perspective, prayer, and promise. Parentage, perspective, prayer, and promise. What does the Holy Spirit do to encourage those of us who are living on this side of glory, recognizing the suffering and pain and persecution that's inherent of living on this side of glory? The first thing that the Spirit does is that the Spirit testifies to our parentage. The Spirit testifies that we, those of us who call upon Jesus as our Lord, are sons and daughters of God. We should not miss the repetition of the phrase, the sons of God in verse 19, sons in verse 23, that Christ might be the firstborn among many brothers, verse 29. All of these phrases hearken us back to verses 14 through 17 in Romans chapter 8 where each of the verses testifies to our identity. Look at what verse 14 says. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Every one of these verses speak of our relationship with God in this family terms. Sons of God in verse 14, sons in verse 15, children of God in verse 16, children. 
And this is resoundingly different, remarkably different than the way Paul refers to those of us who are apart from God previously in chapter 5. In chapter 5, those who did not know Christ were weak, ungodly, and sinners. But now simply because of Jesus Christ, we are sons and daughters of God, children of God, identified by his love for us. Now, you may be wondering, what's the importance of this as we think about our own suffering and weakness? This means practically for us that those of us who believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we belong to him. There's a possession implied here. We belong to our God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is incredibly important to us. Your value and your significance is based on the very fact that you belong to him. To put it another way, God does not love you because you're valuable in and of yourselves, but you are made valuable because you are loved. The world says that you're valuable because of your successes, the letters behind your name, the zeros in your bank account, your experience and your status. But God says that you're valuable simply because you belong to him. Nothing of this world, no one and certainly no circumstance can separate us from the love that he has for us in Christ Jesus. Thus, Paul is able to say with confidence later on in chapter 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? His answer is simply no one and nothing. Earlier this year, many of us enjoyed watching the Olympics. Uh, Olympics... It's, it's a festival where many of us watch sporting events that we don't hardly care about for three years and 50 weeks following that event. We watch things like curling, and we watch the Korean team and the U.S. team actually win medals this year in a sport that should actually be called a leisure activity and enjoy them for about two weeks and follow them mesmerized. A couple years back, we also watched the Summer Olympics and did the same. We have sporting events that we don't quite understand, things like this, 10-meter platform diving. We tell our kids to stray away from danger, but we love seeing these incredible athletes dive off of this 10-meter platform. And as if that weren't enough, we decided that one of the fun ways to see the Olympic event was to make that synchronized diving. So one of the newer events is 10-meter synchronized platform diving. You may recall the winners. Uh, David Badaya is a name familiar to many of us. He won six years ago the summer 10-meter solo platform diving. And two years ago in Brazil, he won the tandem synchronized diving along with his partner Steele Johnson, and they received their silver medal. Afterwards, a reporter came up to them, and they, they interviewed him and them by asking the question, how did you deal with the stress? of the world watching you as you competed and as you compete at such a high level. And this is how David Badaya answered his question. Simply, it's just an identity crisis. When my mind is on this diving and I'm thinking I'm defined by this, then my mind goes crazy. But we both know that our identity is in Christ and we're thankful for this opportunity to be able to dive in front of Brazil and in front of the United States. It's been an absolutely thrilling moment for us. 
Now, it's not very common to see a Christian confess his faith in Jesus Christ, not only on national TV, but international TV. And it's even, even more surprising that David Badiah's theology is actually quite good, not simply a pointing of a finger up to heaven, as if. That indicates something about our faith, ultimately. The reporter was quite nervous. You can see that. And so she quickly diverted her microphone away from David Badiah and actually asked his partner what he felt about his stress level. And this is how his teammate chimed in. The way David just described it was flawless. The fact that I was going into this event knowing that my identity is rooted in Christ and not what the result of this competition is just gave me peace. And it let me enjoy the contest, he said. It's an amazing testimony, amazing testimony that I, I hope that your children who are probably super athletes will one day confess on national TV. We know this though, they're exactly right. We are not defined by what we do. We are not defined by how well we perform. We are not defined by what the world says we are. We are simply defined by the fact that our identity is in Christ Jesus our Lord, that we are able to call our God in heaven, the creator of heavens and the earth, as well as our redeemer, simply as our Abba Father in heaven. He is our parent, and indeed our identity is rooted and founded in him. The Spirit testifies to who you really are on this side of glory. But there's a second thing that the second thing the Spirit testifies to is simply this. The Spirit provides perspective. While admitting the reality of suffering and weakness, Paul reminds us that the Spirit directs our eyes beyond our circumstance. Now, you might recall that in reading these verses, Paul begins in verse 18 with a statement about glory. Look at what he says. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. He ends these verses in verse 30 also with glory. As he says, he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, what does he do? He also glorified, we're told. And in the midst of it is the rem a reminder of our glory when he says in verse 21 that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Here in the midst of this present life, the Holy Spirit redirects our eyes, redirecting our eyes away from our present circumstances or a step or two right before us to bring our eyes up to heaven, heaven that you and I don't always see clearly. This is why Paul is reminding us that instead of focusing on the circumstances and the uncertainties of our present time, the Holy Spirit helps us to focus our eyes on the unchanging realities of heaven. The glory to be revealed is so transcendent, it's so wonderful and so eternal that the present sufferings pale in comparison to the glory to be revealed. In 1 Corinthians, Paul makes a confession that we don't often see him make. We think of Paul as this perfect Christian, this awesome Christian, the leader, the pastor that we admire. But this is his confession in 2 Corinthians 1 verse 8 when he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. 
For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. This is Paul speaking. It's an unusual thing for us to hear Paul speak this way. But what's interesting is that only three chapters later in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this is what Paul says when he says, we do not lose heart. And he says that multiple times. We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. We do not lose heart, Paul says. And he goes on to say, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. For those of you who love C.S. Lewis, he didn't just make that title up. He's borrowing it from Paul when he says, eternal weight of glory. Light and momentary compared to eternal and weightiness of the glory that awaits us. He's not minimizing the suffering and pain we have. He's simply comparing it to the eternal glory that awaits us. It pales in comparison. What changed in Paul's life between chapters 1 and 4? Not the circumstances, friends. One thing worth noting is that the Bible does not promise to take away or alleviate suffering and pain. Never. You look it up. Never does God say, when you come to me, I'm just going to whiz out all those things that bring you pain and suffering. Never. What he does promise, however, is that you can simply assume these things, but yet you are able to endure them. Paul has an interesting statement in Colossians 1.24 when he says, I rejoice in the midst of my suffering. I rejoice in the midst of my suffering. He's not saying I rejoice because of my suffering. He's not saying I rejoice despite my suffering. He says I rejoice in the midst of them. For friends, unlike Uh, unbelievers, well, that is, unbelievers like Christians, rejoice and give thanks when things go well and when we are healthy and everything looks so rosy. Rejoicing and thankfulness in the midst of success and peace are not what makes Christianity unique. What is unusual about believers is that they rejoice and give thanks in the midst of suffering, pain, and weakness. Not because they just simply have to endure them. Not because we are positive thinkers who are able to see only the positive things in the midst of realities of difficulties. Not because we're altering our minds to say we have to be, uh, always be thinking about the good side in all things. But because we know that in the midst of our suffering and pain, we are not alone. God is the Father who is with us, holding us, pushing us, pulling us from the front, and if necessary, carrying us to go beyond our circumstances and our difficulties. Thus, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes. He opens our eyes to see beyond our circumstance, just as he did to Elisha's servant, who saw the enemy surrounding them, and all he can say was, Alas, my master, we are going to die. To which Elisha uh, replied in prayer and said, God, open his eyes. And what he saw was simply that he who is for us is greater than he who is against us. It's about eyes of faith that is able to see what God sees, not according to the way we desire to see. Thus, Paul's summary when he says, now hope that is seen 
is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The Spirit not only gives us our understanding of our parentage, he provides us with perspective. But there's a third point here. Not only parentage and perspective, he, the Spirit, prays for us. Prays for us. Even if we hope in the coming glory, Paul recognizes that believers are often weak. You and I are often weak. Forgetfulness, confusion, and outright rebellion often cause us to be in despair and desperation. If we are honest, we have blind spots that prevent us from recognizing our own need. Even when we know and understand the problem, we don't know exactly how to pray as we ought. How often do we find ourselves looking for words when our loved ones are sick, when our loved ones are dying? And we hedge bets, don't we? When we pray simply saying, we want them to be healed, but only if you will, we say. We struggle with those words because we're not exactly sure how to go about understanding the will of God. But it's not just an intellectual problem when it comes to prayer. Our weakness is not only that we don't know what to pray for or that we forget to pray for those things we need to pray. Even more, our weakness is also spiritual. Frankly, we just don't want to pray at times. We feel this way sometimes because we think we can do it on our own. Or more insidiously problematic, we don't think God can. Paul Miller in his book called A Praying Life says this, one of the subtlest hindrances to prayer is probably the most pervasive. In the broader culture and in our churches, we prize intellect, competency, and wealth. And I know that this group as uber-competent as you are, many of us fall into this trap. Because we can do life without God, praying seems nice but unnecessary. Money can do what prayer does, and it is quicker and less time-consuming. Our trust in ourselves and in our talents make us structurally independent of God. Many of us who are aging realize that the more we age, we come to realize our physical limitations. We cannot do the things we used to. Our brains just don't move fast enough anymore. We just cannot think fast enough. And our experiences are never sufficient. Scripture teaches us daily that we need to become more dependent upon God. But the world says independence is our goal. But prayer is the diagnosis that we need. Here it reminds us that we live our lives not on our own, but dependent upon God. But what's even more incredible is that for those of us who are on this side of glory, seeing and witnessing and experiencing pain and suffering and weakness, the Holy Spirit not only teaches how to pray, he also prays for us. As a gentle counselor, he directs us to know what to pray for and what not to. He instructs us as to our need and to the promises of God which refer to that need. He shows us where our deficiencies are, what our sins are, and what our necessities are. He sheds light upon our condition, makes us feel deeply our helplessness, sinfulness, and poverty. And then he casts the same light upon the promises of the Lord. And then he goes on to promise even further that he prays for us. 
the Spirit himself prays for us. When Paul says that he intercedes with groans that words cannot express, I don't think it means incomprehensible, incapable of being expressed in human words. But what he has in mind is unspoken. You've seen many of you, perhaps our parents, who pray and you have no idea how to express these things. All you can do is to come before God and repeat the prayer of Jehoshaphat saying, we do not know what to do. We do not know what to do. Yet in that moment, whether you recognize it or not, whether you're distracted or not, the Spirit himself is interceding for you. He's praying for you. Our kids don't know how much we pray for them, but yet parents pray. Our Father in heaven who does not slumber, according to Psalm 121, he is praying for you. And his advocacy for you is meaningful, not just because he is praying and that he teaches you to pray, but he is God and he knows the mind of God. He prays for you in the way that you need to be prayed for. So on this side of glory, as we daily struggle, he reminds us of our parentage, he reminds us of perspective of heaven, and then he prays for us and teaches us to pray. But this is the final thought, which is simply this. The Spirit reminds us of God's promise, verses 28 through 30, reminds us of God's promise to us. Let me read those words to you again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, what is the purpose of these verses? The immediate context is verse 18, where Paul begins by saying, the sufferings of this present time. In the midst of suffering and weakness, know this, Paul says, God is in charge, he is powerful, and he cares for you. Many theologians have looked at Romans chapter 830, and they call it the golden chain because it teaches us something about soteriology, which is a fancy word for the doctrine of salvation. Certainly, these verses have some important things to say about the doctrine of salvation, but technical discussions often mask the intention behind Paul's words. God has a plan, and he is trustworthy. Nothing happens by chance, and those who love the Lord can trust in his care and his providence, he tells us. Paul is convinced that God's sovereign hands stand hidden behind all things in life. It is difficult to miss the collection of words and phrases that reinforce this all-powerful hand of God upon us when Paul says, all things according to his purpose, and he predestined. He predestined, he said. Problematic as that word may sound to many individuals that are here, it points out that God is in charge. He knows all things. And he cares. Now, lest you understand what this means is that God's going to give you everything you pray for. Because I know you and I have a list of things that we prayed for that we have not received. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that God won't provide you what you need. He promises uh, that. And in fact, he promises that later on in the verses when he talks about the fact, he who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him to us all. Why will he not also along with him graciously give us all things, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. We have no doubts about his provisions. I mean, we have doubts. Sharon and I, my wife and I, we, we have two kids, 13 and 10 now, and we are limited parents, but we try our best to provide for our, parent, our kids. We do things like this. Um, maybe your parents do the same. We, we, um, we have a house for them, and so they have each their own room, um, and we never charge rent. We have not once asked for rent. I grew up in a family of five, and then I went to school, had roommates throughout. I slept with my brother all growing up. Uh, and then roommates, and then now I have a permanent roommate, and as a result, I never had my own room. They have their own room, but with no rent being charged. Uh, we do things like we provide them three, mostly three meals a day, and mostly healthy meals every single day, and, and, and we don't charge them. Um, it's all free. They can eat as much as they want, they could raid our uh, fridges, but we don't really care. We don't complain much, anyways, in terms of what they eat. We, we also do things like this. We are their Uber drivers. Um, they've never asked me how much gas costs, and they've never actually tried to pay me either. But we would take them to school, we would take them to sports and music. Well-roundedness is what we hope for, so we drive them everywhere, and we've never charged them ever. We've done things like this as well. When they come up and say, hey, um, you know, uh, so-and-so has this new thing, whether electronic or gift or something, we say, I'm sorry, we can't afford to give you that. But as parents, it hits us right here. So what we do is we write it somewhere and we wait. Whether birthdays or Christmas, we save up money, we buy that very thing that they're hoping for to see their lovely smiling faces for about three days, enjoy it and break it the fourth day or forget about them is what we actually go after. This is how parents feel. You would think that if the parents are like that, the kids would say this, mom and daddy, you're the best ever. I will dedicate my life to you. Before you even say anything, I will live my life for your pleasure and for your smile said no children ever. <laughs> Not one. It's cute for a 10-year-old. When you're an adult and as God sees us, I wonder if many of us are like that, ungrateful children who've received much, yet remain ungrateful, and our lips keep asking for things instead of praises. He does promise, he who did not spare his own son, why will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? But what Paul has in mind is not just provisions that you need. What he has in mind is about final glory. The promise to us in these verses is that there is nothing in this world that is not intended by God to assist us on our earthly pilgrimage, to bring us safely and certainly to his home. The promise here is not just about provisions, but that there is nothing that will prevent on this side of glory, whether it be our health, whether it be our work, whether it be relationships, whether it be any other institutions of this world, there is nothing that will prevent God from bringing us home. He will bring us home. He who is faithful will preserve us and bring us home. And this allows Paul to ask without any guile in verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one and nothing. This is the hope and confidence that the Lord provides on this side of glory. 
He reminds us who our parents are. He gives us perspective of glory. He prays for us. And he promises, he promises, he promises to bring us home. This is summarized in a confession called Heidelberg Catechism that was written 500 years ago, yet still very relevant for us, kind of like the way we recited the creeds that are about 1,700 years old. Here, this is the question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? And this is the answer. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the Father, will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for our salvation. Do you hear the echo of Romans 8? Because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly and willing and ready from now on to live for him. May the Lord bless you, Christ central, that in your life, Christ indeed may become central, that in your church's community, Christ may be exalted on high, that he through his spirit may remind us to whom we belong, the perspective of glory that we await, reminder that the Lord is praying for us and the promise given to us that cannot change because God cannot change, that he will bring us home. May our lips sing praises and thanksgiving to him, for he has been so good to us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are indeed so good to us. We confess that we are not our own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray, O oh Lord, throughout this week, give us confidence. Confidence not in ourselves or what we have done or what we are doing, but simply in you, you that we call our Father in heaven because of Christ Jesus our Lord. You who give us perspective, praise for us, and promises to bring us home. Lord, come Jesus for our desire is to be with you. And I pray that every single day that we may be able to experience your presence. Be with Christ central, Lord. May it be a beacon of life, an agent of restoration and reformation in these cities, O Lord. And may Christ be exalted in all that they do. For we pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.